Hello and welcome to another episode of Live Booleans. As always, I'm joined by my co-host Alex. Alex, how you hey going? Hey everybody. Good. How you doing, Costa? Good, good. Uh, this week we are joined by the awesome Carl Leduc. Did I pronounce that correctly? Yeah, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> Carl, thank you for coming on and uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I've I've been seeing uh, you guys uh, release week after week episodes uh, from across the ditch with a lot of people that I've connected with. So it's it's cool to have an invite and and finally come on and see what the fuss is about. <laughs> yeah, and same here. We've uh, seen your stuff pop up and seen you had V on and and now you're working with Serica. That's right. Um, yeah, it's becoming a wholesome little. Awesome little community. Yeah, we're we're slowly gonna take over the um, the Australian game dev podcast space. So you better watch out. <laughs> <laughs> nah, we'll just do a, a, a Russell Crowe on yours, and we'll just say, Nah, Carl's Australian. Everyone, everyone that's Australian. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. That's probably gonna happen. So, so Carl, you're you're a uh, a producer currently um, at Altered State Machine, and you've previously worked on a bunch of mobile, AR, PC, and, and obviously now Alton State is a, is a Web3 company as well. Um, and you also chair, sorry, not chair, but you're the vice chair of the New Zealand uh, Game Developers Association. And you've got your very own podcast as well, Zero to Play. Um, uh, first question, which is, you know, always a question that we have, um, where'd you start your journey, but also why video games? Because everything seems to be, you know, around video games and what's the the passion uh, mm-hmm. for you and how did you get into that? Yeah, I uh, love this question. Uh, I, I've i been a lifelong gamer, like growing up, my first console or my first, um, yeah, console was the, the Game, Boy, Game Boy Color and Nintendo 64, fell in love with Pokemon and all that. Really, so I played games from that like the 90s that was my generation um and yeah played it all the way up until high school getting playstation 2 xbox xbox 360 um never really thought it could be a career and i ended up but i I always wanted to do something creative and i ended up doing a film diploma uh, outside of high school and uh majoring in directing and screenwriting so i was really passionate about storytelling uh passionate i was kind of a um self uh, taught video editor and videographer and really enjoyed just yeah the art of storytelling so that's the kind of career I wanted to pursue but I, I just couldn't find a stable job in Auckland New Zealand after I graduated I tried you know dropping my CV everywhere it was really hard to break through and to just find my feet and exactly like what I could do to make it a career so I really struggled and and pretty much out of the necessity of needing a stable job, I, I just l- kind of widened my horizons and found a, a, a mobile game studio called Gameloft uh, in Auckland. And it's a, it's a. After doing research into them, I saw it was a French company, and I speak fluent French. And I kind of like was like, okay, maybe that is a good enough of an like an angle for me with no game experience to kind of go in and try get an opportunity and i pretty much just walked in one day handed them my film cv just so they could have my contact details and i just said i'm really passionate about games and that led to a, a qa a, an internship as a qa tester and that was my foot mm. foot in the door into the industry and got a full-time job as a qa tester after that and then a year later uh pivoted into the production department as an assistant producer and loved it absolutely fell in love with production and the skills needed 
and the rest is history i guess um now i'm on a path of just becoming a better games as as good as a games producer as i can be and yeah love it love game dev and what's and, for for yeah. those of us in uh, in australia paint the um the new zealand game dev scene for us what's it like over there yeah it's 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 interesting i i've i've been very kind of close on the pulse of of the game dev scene one i, I do the monthly newsletter for uh the the nzgda which has the latest like news events and jobs um and just so i'm just constantly every day just kind of getting content of of local studios and, and connecting with with other studios um i i think i i don't know how to like measure it really uh but we have we we you know, earn something like I think it's three hundred and twenty million a year, um, and we're hoping that it grows to a billion dollars in the next five years. Um, there's definitely opportunity for funding um, at like a government level, and that's something we you know we look at Australia a lot for how like the, the kind of support that we want to get uh, within New Zealand. Um, I guess that's quite of a kind of a broad, broad question. Is there anything more specific in terms of what it looks like that you'd be interested in? Like there aren't many publishers. I think that's an interesting mm. point. Um, the publishing scene could be better. Um, but yeah, there's like 800 employees, I think, that work in the country. What about yeah, in terms of um, larger, you know, studios? Because obviously you got your first entry through, through Gameloft, which is quite a big... Uh, company is there mid-tier you know smaller what's that kind of breakdown like yeah yeah so gameloft i think was one of the with one of the only uh multinational studios that that had a studio in um in new zealand and they closed down in 2014 and the biggest studios now are uh pickpock and they're they're based in wellington they've got 200 employees and they've just recently expanded to columbia where they've purchased their their second studio um the other big studios are rocketworks and that's um a studio that's based in uh dunedin and auckland <clears throat> and then uh grinding gear games that develop path of exile they're based in auckland they i think have between one to two hundred employees as well so those those are the kind of the the big guys and and what's good is that they're new zealand based companies mm -hmm. they're not um yeah you know, it's not like an EA that's based, although that would be good to, cause that's, that's what I, I look at the Australian game dev industry and, and wonder how that would change having these, these big players, you know, like sledgehammer games and things like that and how that would affect the rest of the industry. But what we're really trying to nurture here in New Zealand is uh, homegrown IP and IP that, mm. that is bringing in export revenue to New Zealand as an economy. Um, so that's, yeah, it's, it's interesting, but like a big, a big, uh, multinational company would bring in, like create a lot, lots of employment and lots of jobs and infrastructure. So it's an interesting argument as to like, what is better for the economy. It's always a, it's always a balance and people are, yeah, you know, you're right. People are always saying that even though they have, you know, you might have multinational companies that, uh, have IP that isn't created here, it still generates opportunities and mm. upskills people and, you know, uh, gives opportunities for people to then either go and start their own thing or just move into other companies, uh, having that, that skill as well. Something, something that we see in Australia, you know, we, we don't want it to be like this, but sometimes it feels segmented between, uh, states, you know, there's SA, mm -hmm. Victorian, and and some of the sometimes the communities uh, can feel a bit, uh, you know, different. Uh, and obviously, you know, distance plays a huge part yeah, with, with Australia. But yeah. yeah, but um, 
do do you feel like that in New Zealand? I mean, the way you're talking about it, you know, you're you're, you're talking about companies that existing in multiple locations or in one location, but I don't know. Is it is it like as segmented as as Australia, or is it I'd, different? I'd say I'd say it's not really. Um, the I think the talent, you know, is is quite focused in certain cities. So like Wellington, um, Auckland, Christchurch, Dunedin are probably the four most popular um, uh, cities in New Zealand. But um, so the talent's kind of locked. Oh, cut off. Sorry, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I'll start my well, I'll start my sentence yeah. again. Um, <laughs> so the the four kind of biggest cities in New Zealand are Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch, um, and Dunedin for for game dev like studios. And the talents kind of locked there, but people I think are pretty friendly when it comes to connecting over Twitter, over our Slack channels, uh, mm-hmm. and like sharing information. Uh, one interesting shift I've seen is in Dunedin, um, there's an organization called Code, the Center of Digital Excellence, and that's providing a bunch of, f- so there's a there's a government, um, a government supported program called Code, which is helping pump a lot of um, funding to build studios like locally. And so there's been a lot of attention of, of people moving to Dunedin so that they can qualify mm. for this funding program. Uh, ideally what we want is for code to be established nationally, but for now there's a lot of, you know, really good talent going to Dunedin and a lot of good studios building there. So I think that's probably the only pressure, I guess the country is kind of feeling, but I mean, with NZGDC as well, there's, there's a lot of, um, uh, sometimes like heads budding when it gets decided whether NZGDC will be in Wellington or in Auckland, which are the two, two bigger cities. Um, and they kind of fight over the conference. Uh, but at, at the end of the day, I think people like that doesn't, it's not like a long lasting thing. It's just, mm. uh, so yeah, I don't think it's as bad as, as what, what it's like in Australia, but I think it's just cause the industry is maybe so small that people mm. don't really have the the like the means to kind of set up to build those walls around their mm. corner of the industry, their city. And we've definitely had a few chats with like um, people in our communities, uh, you know, government workers and things like that. And a takeaway we're finding is that, and I'd be interested to know if, if New Zealand's the same, or if it's a bit different, but um, at a general, Australia seems pretty risk averse. And then when you get down to South Australia, we're very risk averse. Like we're very safe. We're like the, the mentality, not just in games and like so much is like, why would you screw up a good thing? Like don't rock the boat. And um, that's why like we rely on government funding because there's no private funding coming in because they don't, any private fund that comes in, they want to know like it's a venture. You're making a IP that's going to last years it's not a premium no no external bodies are really going to fund like a premium game so um they're we rely on that government kind of funding and that has an effect on the mentality of what kind of things are coming out yeah interesting um there so yeah from like a government level i think new zealand as a whole is is wanting that support to kind of create more stable environments but um there's a few investment firms that are investing quite heavily in studios. Um, you know, one of them every quarter investing in like three studios at the moment, which is really cool to see. And and they're kind of, I think, helping support these small players that just need, just 
because creating a game is incredibly hard and expensive and time consuming and having that like initial investment just to get the like prototype mm. or vertical slice done is is i think really important um to you know to succeed to like make any studio that can survive so um yeah that's that's kind of where people are uh, need need to, to need to look until the government uh, provides that like stable ground and how yeah. close-knit is the uh, like uh like the indie scene like um the indie game devs like here we've got like a discord channel it's got like 800 900 members in it um but uh there's like, like a point of reference sort of but like that's that's for south australia not for all of australia mm-hmm. is do you have these like close-knit communities or do they yeah stay so we have we have like nationwide meetups um and a lot of the meetups and just i think just community game dev community in general i think revolves around indie for for new zealand anyway just because indie devs are you know busy marketing a game and trying to network so that they can build a team and or like participate in game jams and things like that whereas the kind of more established um like 100 employee studios like most of those people aren't really engaging or networking just because they're you know they're comfortable in their uh, salaried position and they're not they don't have the same frame of mind as what like an indie dev does so the way i see it is the community really does revolve around the indie scene and and then the people that want to stay connected to the community kind of join in to the you know the slack channel the go to the meetups um but i do find that the indie the indie devs are the ones that really hold the community together um they're the ones that are doing the most engagement and um, providing the most value. Yeah. Mm. And um, with your your podcast, that uh, that you you've you're kind of like trying to dissect that yourself, aren't you? Like, what makes a game tick? What makes the indie dev tick? Um, yeah. What what would be your like? Um, first, for those in case you haven't mentioned, I think we have it's uh, zero to play. So it's on Spotify, YouTube pretty much everywhere you get podcasts I, i'd assume yep um what was like your like mission statement or like what, what were you hoping to achieve with that yeah it's been an interesting journey i started the podcast in january 2021 and um the the mission statement i guess was to just provide content to tell the stories of of game developers around the world um I, I obviously started just by reaching out to my network and a lot of them were based in New Zealand, uh, but I have really tried to make the podcast feel global and to really make it um, uh, have conversations with people from all around the world and different studios and different companies. Uh, but I had an interesting, just the evolution of the podcast. I reached this point where I was just kind of following my curiosity and I realized there was, there was multiple segments. One segment was like the indie dev segment, the like the people that have made a game entirely on their own or have um, are pursuing game dev with the intention of making their own game. And then there was the kind of studio uh, corporate structure. So talking to people that were part of, you know, thousand employee companies that were just like a, a cog in the wheel and like what that experience was like, or if there were senior game developers working for um, a big institution, um, seeing what that story was like and th- those are two very different vibes for those conversations so um there's those two and then there's also kind of a um a business uh studio owner 
category as well we're talking to CEOs and talking to people that have started businesses uh, with the intent of pursuing like a certain technology or a certain platform uh, or like you know VR or mixed reality or something like that and and those people had like more of an entrepreneurial mindset and um, have had taken a lot of risks to like build a team and and that was another kind of energy that I realized um, existed in the space so in terms of what, like I just kind of naturally made those separations and, and when I've brought on guest hosts um, recently I've, I've made sure that they kind of have their own little pockets of, of interest and, and tried to gear uh, the, the guests that they have towards those kinds of people but to be honest I don't know where the podcast is growing I don't know where it's going to be in, in six months time um, but one interesting observation is is the indie dev stories and interviews that I do they're definitely the most popular um, I, I feel like people aren't really curious about how what like a, a senior programmer is doing at a certain studio um I, I just feel like just organically it's it's harder to get attention on those ones even though i've gotten a lot of value from those i think as the podcast grows i might need to lean in in the content that does get the most attention you know and and, and build off that and that seems to be the indie dev scene and the people that have made a game entirely on their own or with a very small team do you think it's those like stories where people are, you know, against all odds, one developer goes and, you know, has an idea and, and, and takes it all the way to market? Do you think that's what it is that uh, inspires people to want to or draws people to those kind of episodes? Yeah, I think it's I think it comes down to people's passion. Like indie devs, I think, are, have the most obvious passion for game dev, whereas I think something like a senior programmer work that's worked on say like ratchet and clank on the like weapon system or something like that could probably give a really valuable gdc talk that would really impact um and influence the industry but um i i don't think people are actively seeking out those um developers stories and how they got into the industry it's it's almost like how can you package what value they've created into yeah like a talk or something whereas i don't think the podcast is really built for that right now it's it's not like extracting as much value whereas hearing a an indie an indie game dev story of how they learned programming like when they were a teenager and had this crazy idea for this concept of a game and then spent three years like chipping away at it and then it went viral like somewhere and now it's their full-time job I, i i feel like that's a lot um, there's a lot of people trying to like follow that same mm. path so they can relate. Yeah, I, I think I definitely see parallels with with what we're doing as well in terms of the, the which episodes we find uh, are most popular. I, I feel like it's either someone that's specialized and very uh, well-renowned or, ha- you know, has been in the industry for 20, 30 years or has just has a lot of experience in that. Or it tends to be, yeah, the passionate uh, indie developers who have taken it all the way from nothing to, to everything. You know? So, mm. yeah, I can definitely see where you're coming from. And those, it's this similar audience. It's, you know, people that resonate with that and want to aspire to be that as well. Yeah. Well, one thing that I, I think is really exciting is, so there's, there's a great community of um, uh, people that create like game dev documentaries, uh, like people make mm. games. That's more like journalism. Um, but there's, I can't, the, the name's escaping me right now, but there's a great game dev documentary channel on YouTube that like goes into studios and, you know, puts together like 10 interviews and has concept images and early prototype footage of certain games. Mm. Um, I think that's extremely well done. And part of me kind of wants to 
to try to do content <laughs> like that, which is, and, and I also think, um, the, like the senior and the, the bigger projects, I think are really valuable when mm. they've just released like a new game, like when, when a new, mm -hmm. say like the last of us part two comes out and you manage to get an interview with the like lead designer for it. Like that's, mm. that's a hugely valuable time, but that's the exact time that, you know, everyone's asking for their attention. And so that's the, the podcast for me has just been kind of like a, a personal way for me to just interact with people as they come across my, mm. um, my area. But if, if I want to start becoming, you know, the the go-to like game dev outlet for when like big games drop that's like a whole different strategy mm. and and it's going to take i think years to kind of build that trust and mm. reputation um so i don't know if i'm going to go down that route but it's definitely interesting to see how that's that's start, starting to be where i where i where i'm looking for how the podcast is growing and is that like your personal you want it to go down that that path like because you definitely like you yourself want to do a deep dive in those areas absolutely i'm I, like i said i i came from like a well i started in film and i have a big passion for storytelling and i have mm. i have skills as um as like a video editor and I, I would love to pursue that but it's i think one time consuming expensive risky um right now i think i'm just taking small steps i think having a, yep. a video editor working on the podcast is going to help me start to chip away at those ideas and and maybe mm. maybe start to um try do some episodes of zero to play that are a bit more ambitious um maybe somewhere i go travel to a studio and spend time with someone for the day and and make that into an episode um, there's there's a lot of ideas um yeah for sure but I, I think building a team at least with video editors is a, is a good start because there's no way i'm going to start going down this rabbit hole if if i know i can't deliver on on yeah. this massive asset yeah yeah, and uh, yeah, again, parallels with with Alex and I. We always have these ideas. Like we've we've thrown around ideas to do to do deep dives on games. Uh, you know, particularly indie games, and just do a deep dive in like certain areas of mm -hmm. that indie game. You know, whether it's game design or production, or you know, or maybe even have episodes where we we focus on certain things, like limited series in that way. Um, but it's always a, it's always an element of where do you invest your time in. Mm -hmm. um, you know, to, and balance where it's, uh, say, let's say viable, not commercially, but, you know, in terms of what people are going to want and what your audience is going to want versus like, I'm really interested in that and I want to do a deep dive on that. So it's, yeah, it's always, how do you find you, you do that balance um, at the moment? Well, one, one thing that I really um, uh, gel, like connect with is just the state of social media. And, and the reason mm -hmm. I did start the podcast and have done it the way that I have is because it's, it's really easy to produce content. Um, and having an hour long piece of content is the kind of raw version. And now I want to start looking at, at chopping those one hour interviews into shorter, like couple minute, uh, clips that are a lot more valuable and then having, um, more presence on, on other platforms like Instagram and TikTok and, and things like that, which is at the moment, it's, there's just, I've got so much content right now to use and, and nothing is being done with it just cause I haven't got the time. So I kind of want to just focus on that just because, yeah. because I, I do believe in social media and, and the kind of, um, environment of, of fast turnaround content, as opposed to creating like an hour and a half documentary that 
I don't know where it could be distributed. Like if it was on Netflix, maybe I'd think differently, you know, if, if, mm. if it was something that could be distributed there. But, but yeah, right now I feel like this is the, the smartest play. It's a whole beast in itself, isn't it? Just um, what you're talking about in terms of taking out, you know, this content in raw format and just chopping it and then just like distributing it to all these different social media platforms. It's such a mammoth of a task, especially to do that yeah, each week. Absolutely. And and that's, I think, where the, the opportunity comes. Um, mm. And uh, that's something I do want to start growing towards because as I'm getting more like busy and tired, I, I, I want to make the, psych, the, the, the process a lot easier um, mm. so that it doesn't necessarily have to go through me for every every episode because uh, that's mm. yeah it's a lot of content to be uh approving and going through yeah and well, we it, used to it, we used to it, animate the episodes oh wow. and uh <laughs> oh my god because you're talking like an hour and a half long episodes and stuff like an hour to hour and a half and it would be cool but then like i just wouldn't sleep for a day <laughs> and then like i could do that when i was 18 and now that i'm 29 my brain is fried like and i start wigging out the rest of the week like and i'm not fun to be around so it's it's definitely i definitely wanted to do that wanted to bite off more than i could like reach its potential and all that kind of stuff but then it's just like you go like well you're not good to anyone if you can't function Mm -hmm. you know so yeah sustainable steps it's um it's funny because like you're talking about sort of uh going through the process of trying to streamline you know, let's say the production of the podcast. Um, it kind of reminds me of when Alex and I, we, we talked about, we've, we've talked spoken to people where, you know, they, they're game developers uh, first and foremost, but then as their hobby, they, you know, play games. Um, do you find, you know, zero to play is almost like a way to also hone your skills as a producer as well? Like, is it, do you find that that helps in any way, um, as a producer? Absolutely. Yeah, a hundred percent. Um, I realized very quickly when I started the podcast that even if no one watched it, I would still get so much, I would, I would have still, cons- mm-hmm. and I really like, I didn't really care about the numbers. I'm starting to now because I've, I've gotten a sponsor now and I want to hire a video editor and I do want to turn it into a business. But at the beginning it was purely selfish because I was getting so much value by having a mentor that I could talk to for an hour and ask anything that I wanted. Mm-hmm. And, and that helped me in my confidence, um, yeah so confidence and just talking and like navigating conversation um uh understanding how studios were structured and and how you know games were made because having an experience at one studio is just one um one perspective hearing it from someone else just kind of it 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 refines that perspective of how games are made and and absolutely that helps me um as a producer like for example in in my last position i didn't really touch budgets or costs whereas that's a huge um responsibility for producers in some studios uh but i was you know wanting to be a games producer without being exposed at all to the budget of a game and i was able to get uh advice and um perspective and like ask other producers directly about what you know the the areas that i was most Mm. unsure of so this podcast is uh, yeah the podcast has been absolutely vital for me to just grow and and confidence as as a producer as well as just a, a game developer in general just navigating the space and did you find yourself in those initial stages of zero to play going for you know, because this is something that I did in, in Life Bullies and I still do is like, I'm a UX designer and I 
will actively, you know, there's certain people that I really aspire to, you know, be in terms of uh, as a designer, as a researcher. And I always get those people on the podcast because just like you mentioned, it's a mentor. It's like someone that you can ask all these questions to, you know, in a podcast format. Um, but you, you gain so much knowledge. D- did you find you were doing that as, a lot with producers and, and just trying to, hone, you know, get better as to... Yeah, yeah. I, I think part of me was a bit nervous as well um, initially because I didn't want to ruin a, a relationship or like embarrass myself. Um, For sure. So, but I think as I was building that confidence, I was, I was careful who I reached out to. But uh, mm. some people that I did feel like I could approach, I think, um, mm. uh, that, that really helped. So I just, I just kind of picked people that, that were in a, in a position or at a company that um, was in, in a place that I feel like I could have been curious about and asked really insightful for sure. questions. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's, that has really helped me for sure. Yeah. And, and you, you mentioned kind of how, uh, being a producer changes from company to company. How has that changed for you from being at, uh, you know, Gameloft as a, as a producer and then you were a uh, producer at Rocketworks as well. And then now you're uh, working at Altered State Machine. How has that changed over those three different companies? Yeah. Um, so like at, at Gameloft, I was an assistant producer. So just in terms of that title, I was very much just handed tasks to do and f- to follow those tasks. And that was for for mobile. It was uh, for you know live service games um, and... and uh, Gameloft like had to report to an HQ in Paris, so that that had its own um, you know intricacies of, of how to communicate with them and and how to um, how to manage dealing with people that were overseas and in a different time zone. Uh, whereas at Rocketworks, um, I was a production coordinator and I was very much project on on the project management side. So I was just focused on uh, you know running standups. Uh, running sprints, tasking, uh, doing retros and making sure that we, you know, we hit our, our patch, our patches that we needed to deliver. And up until last year it was, it was delivering the game. Um, and that was, and I, throughout the course of two years, I, I kind of jumped between different departments and had experience working with different teams within Rocketworks. So, you know, the audio team and the art department, and then the desi- designers, I kind of jumped around, which is really cool for me because all of those experiences were different and I learned different things. Uh, whereas now at, at ASM, I'm I'm kind of focused on, just because we're so early in development, uh, I'm focused on like partnerships and uh, web development. Those are the kind of two. So it's like not even game development yet. It's we're working on uh, communicating with other studios to potentially collaborate on some of our projects. And then the, the web development side, which is really important in Web3, just most things are developed through browsers at the moment. Um, mm. And just the whole minting process of NFTs requires a lot of web development. So I'm building a lot of experience there and that's new to me as well. Um, so yeah, it's, they've all been different. And, and I, yeah, I, I just think the, the role of a producer is kind of a catch-all a lot of the time for mm. just the person that can help get stuff done and um and it, it all depends on what needs to get done i guess do you find yourself picking up skills in like 
user experience, uh, you know, the, the technical side, game design when you're working more closely with games? Did you find that those were skills you picked up as well? Um, I've always been like interested in game design and I always love, that's what I love about being a producer is you're in the meeting, like taking minutes of like with the designers talking about how like a system is designed and sometimes you can like chime in and, and give your two cents and feel like you're, you're contributing. But I honestly have so much respect for designers because mm. it's not like an easy job. There's so much to think about. And especially when it comes to like balancing, um, I, I, I like to be that person that's just kind of in the room listening and curious and then can maybe throw out one like suggestion throughout the meeting. Um, but, uh, if, if I was to design my own game, um, that like I do, I definitely do have ideas for games and things mm. that I've written down that who knows, maybe one day I will, uh, want to like pursue that but but right now I'm really comfortable just being being the kind of producer in a meeting and letting the game designers focus on the on the game design that was a question and, I was going to ask was if with, from having the guests and starting your own project have you had that that now that hunger to start your own title so what what role would you want to take on with that absolutely uh yeah so just just quite like very personally i um i do feel like i'm quite entrepreneurial and i would love to give a go at being a founder one day um maybe like a ceo uh just i i feel like i get along really well with other ceos that i've spoken to and i just i feel like i i understand the the challenges in that space it is a very big undertaking and you you know you take on a lot of risk and i don't I would only do it if I had that idea that I really believed in that I'd want to uh, pursue. And, but I, yeah, I definitely, as a producer, you're kind of focused on building teams and that, and, and, and that's kind of what is necessary when you're building a company, you're just kind of building uh, teams in the areas of HR and finance and accounting and uh, marketing. Like it's, it's bigger than just the game development team. So I think working as a producer has definitely helped me have the confidence of, of maybe one day starting my own thing. But right now I'm still learning. I'm still learning too much about what game development is and how I can be most valuable. And, uh, but yeah, if, if tomorrow I wait, like have a dream of this amazing idea that I just can't let go of, maybe I will start like putting in motion, like a slide deck and then pitching <laughs> and then approaching other people to maybe, um, co-found it with me, but I haven't, I haven't had that moment yet. Yeah. So it sounds they, like even yeah. naturally, if you go, if you start your own project, you're, you're going to gravitate towards that, that pro producer role. Well, I, I, well, we'll choose a CEO. Well, you kind of have like to do that, right? In an indie game. Yeah, I, th studio. I, I think I would, I think I would initially, um, but at the same time, yeah, it all depends on how big of a company I would be wanting to, I think that's a really important question to ask when you go down that path. If, if you're wanting to build a company that's like 10 people big or 50 like that, that has uh, entirely different challenges and the the role of like a CEO in a company like that would be different. Whereas if, you know, if I just wanted to develop a game and a concept that I had, uh, you know, I could probably deliver it with like a 10 people or five to 10 people and I would be the, you know, producer on the team. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question that uh, I guess it all depends on the idea yeah it's always like yeah. that that resourcing whether like you're wanting to pursue based on the resources that you have say you know just yourself or maybe you and, and someone else or if you want to say expand the vision or whatever it is that you're developing whether you want to go out and find people to f you know fill that and then build on that so it's yeah it's always like 
that that'll always dictate the um what you're doing and how much you take on as like responsibility and, and what your role is as well mm-hmm. so yeah 100 percent agree with you yeah because i've i've definitely got recently started thinking about a game that i want to make but i've been a, a founder and i've worked in a studio and i know that where my limits are like i don't have the guts to tell people what to do i'm not business orientated but i love the art so like i would i could never be a producer ever ever even on my own title i could not be a producer but i'd need people who would either want to do it or i would just do it myself um but i I would i would hire people to tell me what to do yeah well (laughs) another angle that we didn't touch on is is you know maybe i become an indie dev i've downloaded unity i really had like i have a few concepts that i do want to try prototype myself like maybe i find that it's most efficient for me to just like do my own game after hours or yeah not have anyone else involved which i i've tried several times over the last decade to like learn programming and and get into it but i i keep just falling off and and i know one day i'm gonna i'm gonna do it properly and and actually ship a game and that's one you know kind of bucket list item i I do want to achieve is, is actually just shipping a game my own um, regardless of if, if I still work as a producer during the day. Yeah. 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 It's like your risk appetite as well. Like, you know, do you want to go full time on it and just like, just pursue that and find publishers and all that. And mm. it has a whole different relationship with, you know, with the, the project that you're working on, whether it's something that you're like going all at it, or if it's something that's just like a side hobby or project that you're doing. Mm. Yeah. Um, and and talk to us like for for those who are listening who don't know what altered state machine is what what is it and uh, what for you what made you jump into you know web three yeah air quotes around that yeah oh that's a, an awesome question and I um so it was a very it was a very big decision for me uh, as someone who uh, one loves to make everyone happy i hate conflict um i i I'm, I'm very much passionate about networking with the community and all that I, I i've seen the the controversy and the divisiveness that web3 has brought in the game space in the last year and i've read i've read all of it and i think there's a few there's a few things that made me make the move um i so what happened a couple months ago one of my mentors uh, patrick wagner who um, i worked with at game loft who helped me get a job at where to game shop uh, down in wellington um he moved over to australia to work at immutable uh, as as the director of, of their new games um uh, like s- section and and that was a really big moment for me uh to when I started seeing talent move into the space. And after that, I started seeing people on LinkedIn announce, you know, new jobs at these web three companies. Um, and ASM came onto my radar just because I, I, I connected with the, um, with the CTO and, um, just, just had a chat. And the, so ASM as a, as a company is, is very complex. Their, their vision is the decentralization and ownership of AI. And they're really, um, focused on the niche of AI and the potential that it has in a decentralized world. Um, I'm not going to try and explain it in too much detail because I like, uh, there's still so much I'm, I'm learning and talking about 
machine learning models and things like that and, and training AI is um, very complex, but that is the kind of ambition that they want to do is they want to make training AI fun and create these experiences where you uh, have an AI um, that you train and compete in different environments. And if, you, if you're interested, you should definitely go to, go look at the website and, and we have a few announcements soon of, of projects that um, that, that are coming through the pipeline. Um, the, the main project that I'm working on is Muhammad Ali, uh, the next legends, which is a, an AI boxing experience. So it's kind of like, if you can imagine, um, like an AI manager game, like top 11 on mobile, it's, it's like you're managing a, a, a soccer team as the coach and you kind of choose all the, uh, different areas that you want to focus on when you train your players or like trade them in and out. Um, and then you kind of see the, the game run in front of you and you see how, like if the characters pass or, um, tackled like too hard or, you know, how they, how they tactically behave around one another. And that's the whole concept of, of ASM is, is creating environments where you can train your AI to perform better. Um, so it's really, it's so it's fascinating and it's 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 in an emerging space web3 is a really interesting um and blockchain technology is really interesting I, and that's what i'm i'm kind of that's why i chose the job as one because it was, it was interesting and there was some really good talent that worked there um uh the salaries there are really competitive as well um and i had an opportunity to work as a games producer which is what i've been really dying to to pursue and they're also based in New Zealand and, and have had some good success with um, uh, projects like um, Fluff World and Party Bears uh, with their sister company Non-Fungible Labs so it was it just seemed like a, an opportunity that if I didn't take it now it would it wouldn't yeah it would just be like a once in a lifetime opportunity really for me and my career and the emerging technology of web three, because I honestly don't know where it's going to be in a year's time. It's, it's, mm. it's a very volatile space. Um, but it's something that I decided I want to, to kind of get on for the ride and just see, see how it played out. And, and if it does end up becoming a big chunk of, of the like overall games industry, um, I, I'll be grateful for having this experience early on. Um, but it's really interesting. Like I, I do really want to, um, talk more about like web three and games. Um, and everyone that I speak to has kind of a different perspective based on the information and like the headlines that they've seen, um, games like Axie infinity that are like mm -hmm. labeled as play to earn. Um, I don't really connect with that. Like I don't really find those experiences yeah. fun. And, and that's something that I really want to, um, make sure as clear as I'm really passionate about games and, and that's what yeah. I, I want to do is use this technology in a way that creates new experiences that you can't create anywhere else. So I, I understand people's, um, contention with it. And I think there's definitely a lot of like volatility. There's a lot of bad actors in the space. Uh, but with the amount of talent that I've seen going to companies to work on projects, I'm really excited for what we're going to see announced in the next year of kind of big projects in the space and how they um, slowly start to change people's perspective on, on Web3. Um, but just to just to tie off on that, I, I'm doing a panel at NZGDC later on this year, um, all about Web3 and just starting to help get rid of the stigma behind it with a lot of other um, uh, experts in the industry and people that work in Web3 in New Zealand. Uh, so I'm really excited to kind of take part in that panel and help 
just bring everyone together and just talk about games and and what we love about them and how web3 can can add to that very well said as well because you know you always see the it's just such a huge like there's so much contention between uh you know game developers uh and just the what like what it is what web3 is and you know what all these different um, elements are and and i that's something i have seen as well like that play to earn that's a term that's kind of i think people are trying to stay away from you know there's like and i, th- I think it all, it all comes down to how you structure it but at the end of the day like you've mentioned a game is a game it has to be fun to play it's not like they're playing it to just simply earn you know um and and axie infinity you know as huge as it is like it yeah it's it's just a different kind of experience i think than than other games out there yeah um what what is the web3 landscape like in new zealand like obviously in australia we have immutable we have alluvium we have you know a bunch of uh growing um companies is it and obviously you've got asm there in new zealand is there other things popping up have you seen it is it, is it a trend yeah so the the big players are non-fungible labs who are the creators of fluff world party bears thingies seekers and and they have this massive vision for um like an open metaverse and what that is and they have so like just the the amount of network that they've managed to and support like they have I think support uh, Snoop Dogg, you know, they've partnered with and they they have so many projects in the pipeline that are just so left field from experiences that people are used to now. And just what ASM are doing with AI and, and what it's like to own an AI and like a trained brain um, and what that could mean for the future. Yeah. It's, it's really... So in terms of the successful people, I think non-fungible labs and ASM are, and, and they're founded by the same uh, brothers. So Aaron McDonald and David McDonald uh, are two of the founders and they, um, I think they kind of own the space right now. And there's a lot of companies and studios within New Zealand that have partnered with them to help them deliver mm-hmm. on their projects. So they're kind of absorbing uh, a lot of the people that are, um, interested in pursuing web3 i have seen a few other indie projects come about just by indie devs that um you know have been working on a game and have seen the opportunity in web3 so mm-hmm. they've pivoted to uh, mm-hmm. implement uh like tokenomic um like uh, like nft style uh systems to to help with just the the shape of their game so there are there are a few like that but but nothing yet and i just think in the web3 space in general globally there aren't many uh successful like use cases i think i think just yet. Yeah, yeah i think the next year is going to be really really interesting to just see what uh what trends arise what's what projects become successful because it's um yeah it's it's a it's an ever-evolving space um yeah, that's interesting. And it's it's kind of like your the way you you speak about why you joined it is kind of like the way I felt when I joined Alluvium. It was it's like a train that's going and you you don't want to miss it. You know what I mean? Like you you want to jump on it whichever way it is and you don't know how it's going to end up, but it's 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 exciting in that initial phase where where things are still being developed, you know, everything not everything is certain um and and yeah, we don't know where it'll end up as well. Mm. Um I wonder. I wonder if uh, you know brothers is a is a common thing with the Alluvium team being founded by the the Warwick brothers as well. Um, the other thing that I found interesting, I don't know if you have an opinion on it, is 
how Web3 kind of opens up this crowdfunding model for uh, new projects to spin up and essentially, you know, whichever way the, the, the Web3 company chooses to do it, you know, whether it's a land sale or whatever it is uh, to to bootstrap essentially a project from scratch. And that's just something that, I mean, we've seen it with Kickstarter and Indiegogo and that kind of stuff, but at the level in which in which this happens and I guess the the way that you can kind of facilitate it in this, you know, really easy way without uh, having a lot of fees from from intermediaries like that like that i think that's huge like just to be able to to find like have an idea uh you know maybe build a vertical slice and then just say hey we're making this game and this is the tokenomics around it and then just fundraise a game like that like it just goes from zero to you know 10 million in uh, overnight like I think that's huge. What are your What are your thoughts on that? I mean, if you if, you, if you've had any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think I, I think um, just being devil's advocate, there's there's examples of, of people putting out like a few concept images and then raising millions of dollars. Right, yeah. uh, there, there's an example that that was developed by someone here in New Zealand. Um, it was like a Pokemon, like a blockchain version. I, th- I can't remember what it's called. It's called like. Um, Oh, Pixelmon. I think it was Pixelmon. Um, I've heard of that. Yeah, and yeah. it was just, it was a massive uh, disappointment when they they mm. started releasing actual assets that weren't at all what they had promised. And I, th- I, I think Kickstarter probably suffered from a similar, um, yeah. similar use cases where people would overpromise and underdeliver or just not deliver at all uh, on what they'd promised. Um, and that definitely, yeah, there's definitely, I think hundreds of stories like that from Kickstarter. And the reality is, is those similar uh, stories are going to be happening in web three. So I'd say just make sure, do your research, um, yeah. uh, do as, yeah, just when you, when you establish trust in a project, like really check your, your sources and, um, don't just throw your money into anywhere without, yeah, being sure like that that it's it's a it's a trustworthy place. And building trust, I think, is is the key to um, navigating the space properly. Because I think if anyone, even scam scammers that reach out, like if if anyone just puts a little bit of attention to vet um, any source like don't click like unknown links and things like that it's just normal common sense when navigating the internet um i think that will save a lot of uh heartache but when it comes to like things collapsing in crypto like the um the story with um uh in the last few weeks with ust and terra mm-hmm. um and luna i so i'm not really invested at that level um of, in just cryptocurrency and there's there's a lot to learn there as well with with people trying to create like whole economies again that's kind of separate to like the nft space uh, but they all kind of relate at the end of the day especially if it crashes the um the economy by you know 50 percent <laughs> in the last few weeks yeah but um <laughs> it's uh yeah it's it's a volatile space it's still very early um yeah know what you're getting into it is yeah it is so rife with scams as well like this and i know everything is like that you know that's i don't know if this is a shift in web3 but obviously just with games in general like discord being used as you know the the main source of uh engaging with the community and creating a community and just the amount of scams that have uh popped up through that you know just the ability to message someone and say here's a link that does this thing and quickly act now like and you're right it's it's all about education like it's it's at the end of the day it's common sense you know you can you should be able to vet what is uh something that's 
suspicious and kind of saying do this right now and you get it for free and blah 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 versus you know actual communication from uh from a company and, and it's interesting to see how it all is evolving and how companies are putting things in place to uh to try to educate users and then also to try to uh yeah combat that that's those scams yeah i think education's one and like regulation is another just i think mm. like discord and and platforms like that need to um continue to just understand the landscape and you know their responsibility is to make sure that people can't be scammed and um you know that's the bit that any any anyone that gets scammed through discord looks bad on them so they i'm sure we'll be seeing improvements across the board so that things like that you know just like when you create a discord account by default you're um being or when you join a community you, sh- you shouldn't be able to be reached out by dm by a stranger yeah. by default you know <laughs> by default like, yeah like things like that that sh- that will hopefully be um cleaned up so that there's less um opportunities for people to get scammed yeah yeah just just implementing something like a screener like the it's so bizarre that you can someone can just dm you directly and you get spammed from all these people like that that's just Mm. something that isn't yeah isn't around with like you know linkedin or facebook or any of these other platforms like there's always some kind of barrier between you just being contacted Mm. um directly but yeah no it's interesting yeah, one one other like I just recently watched it, so it's top of mind. But Mark Mark Rober put out a video about the uh, call like call center um, hackers or scammers and and how they make something like eighteen million dollars yeah. a year and yep. and and they prey on you know people that have retired. It's a great video. I definitely recommend people check it out. But I think the the point that I wanted to make is is people still get scammed on a daily basis through email and phone calls. And it's, it's just something that's part of society, unfortunately. And although, yeah, Web3, because it's tied to like financial models, it's um, a lot, it's, it's common for scammers to be in that space right now. Um, I'm sure it will, it will have its own like percentage of like presence in the space. And, and we just have to accept that and, and do our best to combat it. Yeah, 100%. Um, and yeah, something we always like to kind of wrap our podcast or end our podcast with is uh, advice for, let's say, aspiring producers or maybe people that want to get into the games industry. Um, what, what would be your or even key the podcast advice? industry <laughs> in the pod- yeah, or in the podcast yeah. yeah, or if they want to make a podcast, like what yeah, would that be? anything? Yeah, I mean, so for podcasts, uh, it really is just start. I think that's that's the advice. Um, I just started recording calls on on Zoom, and I reached out to like four friends that I'd made, and that's how I got kicked off. And I just committed to doing one one episode a week, and and that just just as long as you stay um consistent and you can you can yeah achieve well i'm, I'm still very early in the journey I'm, I'm talking as if i've succeeded but i'm still very early but it's been really fun and for me personally uh com- totally worth it like after the first 10 episodes i realized that i had reached i had found a hack to contact and talk to people that i aspired to work with one day <laughs> And, and having a podcast is a great way because people people want to talk and they love to talk and sometimes a podcast is a less intimidating way than just asking if you can have a phone call and for them it's promoting them as well so it's it's mutually beneficial um, having a podcast is, is a really great strategy for for networking that's that's all I'll say mm. um, in terms of being a producer uh, I I'm still very early on in my 
a production journey and I think what I realized early on was that there is a place for people in game development that aren't programmers or artists but rather people that um so I can't I can't code and I can't draw so I wasn't sure like what my place would be but my passion is in people skills organization um communication and making sure that people are motivated and happy and efficient and and those are kind of pillars to what i just operate my life by and i was so grateful to find an area in game development that valued those skills and i um i think if you're if you're one of those people and you you like to like organize people you like to um make sure people get work done stay accountable and things like that then production might be the department for you and you can you know get started by looking out for like assistant producer or um even even like production coordinator roles um it's or yeah production assistant they usually get called something different uh, depending on the studio um but yeah uh, otherwise just i think a good experience to get and this is something I've, I've yet to do is participating in game jams as a producer um i i think producers probably aren't that common at game jams but i think a lot of teams could really uh benefit and find value in just having someone that is willing to write down the tasks and like write down the minutes of meetings so that people like if someone from the team joins the next day they can read a document to to know where things are like there's a lot of value that a producer can provide in 48 hours and um that's something i want to experiment with is, is participating in a few game jams and seeing how that process goes from someone that isn't physically um able to program the game um so yeah that that's another thing i i think would be great especially if you're just trying to get into the industry and become well known um that is a place you can put your attention yeah, and go to meetups. Go to meetups and network with people. Um, I think being a producer is about um, connecting teams and communicating with different people. So put yourself out there uh, and and go to meetups and try and meet as many people as you can and provide value for as much people. Like people love just having QA and someone to, someone to like test their game. Reach out to people and say that you'd love to test their game for them and give them some feedback. And yeah, there's. Yeah, there's a bunch. If you want more, like, feel free to reach out to me over Twitter at Carl's Content. If you want um, more advice, or if you're looking at becoming a producer in the industry, because I'm I'm constantly seeing roles for production departments, and, and I want to help help grow the production departments ar- around the world. So, um, yeah, that's it. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. Pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for having me.